Hi, welcome to Africa Past and Present, episode 102. Yes, we're into our second century, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alegi. Today we're pleased to welcome, by remote link, from MSU's NPR affiliate station WKAR, Greg Marinovich, the South African Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist, filmmaker, and co-author of The Bang Bang Club, a book about South Africa's tumultuous transition to democracy, which has been translated into six languages and also made into a feature film. Marinovich has spent 25 years covering conflict around the globe, for example, in Bosnia, Chechnya, Israel and Palestine, Afghanistan, with his writing and photographs appearing in magazines and newspapers worldwide. His award-winning investigation into South Africa's Marikana massacre of minors by police in 2012 was just published as a book in South Africa titled Murder at Small Kopi, The Real Story of the Marikana Massacre, published by Penguin. Greg Marinovich gives lectures and workshops on human rights, justice, photography, and storytelling. He was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University in 2013-14 and currently teaches visual journalism and filmmaking at Boston University's Journalism School. It is a pleasure to welcome Greg Marinovich to the podcast. Can you tell us, uh, Greg, how you became a photojournalist, and also if the work of great South African photographers like Jürgen Schatterberg, David Goldblatt, Alf Kumalo, Peter Magubane, Ernest Cole, and so many others influenced your own work? They influenced my work later because I really slipped into photojournalism quite accidentally. I, I never thought of it as a career or even as a, as a job. I was documenting, you know, writing and researching about the effects of apartheid in Bantustans and what effect it had on society. And, and I was kind of doing a few pictures because it was necessary to have images with it, but I really wasn't into photography. Um, and then I had my 35mm camera stolen and an advertising guy said, you can't buy these small little cameras. And he took me to this lovely old um, secondhand camera store and, and with the insurance money I bought another 35mm and medium format and a large format Linoff. And I was like, what is this? Is this a camera? And he says, yes, yes, you must learn how to use this. Um, which I did, and then I fell in love with photography and got more interested. And I still wasn't really doing photojournalism. I was illustrating and, and just learning the craft. And then, you know, the, the ANC and the other liberation movements got unbanned and the political leaders were released from Robben Island. And I started covering these things and I started learning about photojournalism and suddenly I was shooting, you know, news and violence and I really didn't have much of a clue. But... I did speak to people like Goldblatt and Weinberg, um, even, you know, and they were very helpful and, and really wonderful, as was Magubani was really good and Kumalo was fantastic. You know, these people have become friends through the years. And much later, I found work like Ernest Cole's, you know, because the books weren't readily available. Nobody knew about Ernest Cole in South Africa because you couldn't get the books, unless you're inside the industry, of course. And so slowly, you know, I got exposed to these people's work, Guy Tillam, Cedric Nunn, lots of these other great photographers and, and other people who don't have a big name but did significant small bodies of work that just help 
open your interest in new directions. And you combine the the journalist side with the uh, photography side so well, in my opinion. And I was wondering about that today. I mean, in some ways, we're now in a in a photographic age, in the, in the digital age. But do you consider yourself primarily a journalist or a photographer, or is it the combination that matters? None of the above, really. I mean, I, I do different things. You know, I write books. I make films. I, you know, I. I so I, I just think of myself really as a documentor and a storyteller and, and I just use whatever medium I think is most attractive or the one that I find most interesting for that particular project, which is a little unnerving at times when you go down a path and you realize it's the wrong one. But anyway. Now, in your particular context, you were working early on in very difficult circumstances. This was towards the end of the apartheid era in South Africa. And there's a scene in the film, The Bang Bang Club, which is based on, on your work with Joao Silva and, and other photographers, in which you're, I think, in a pub or a shabine, and you're kind of uh, attacked verbally uh, for being a white South African, graphically documenting black South Africans as both perpetrators and victims of really graphic, brutal violence. Uh, how have you grappled with these challenges in your career? With great difficulty, I must be honest, because when someone attacks you and says, you know, you're kind of living off our blood, what do you say? Because on, on one level, you are, you know, you're making a living, and part of what you're doing is photographing these very brutal things. But then it goes on to a whole deeper level where these things are happening anyway whether I'm photographing them or not, doesn't affect them happening and what's happening to people and perpetrators and victims. But on the other hand, at least you can cast some light in it and can be documented for various purposes. And then that, of course, takes us through to, you know, how were those images represented? Certainly in the mainstream media, they were misrepresented. And I was working a lot at that time for, you know, the Associated Press and for foreign magazines and newspapers and when it appeared locally always the captions were changed or even within the system the captions were changed to make it look very much like black people killing black people for no other purpose and killing is great fun right and the whole nuance of the apartheid regime's funding of certain groups and and the third force and undercover operatives stoking the violence that was never photographed even though we tried and tried and tried, and I, you know, once I just missed getting photographic evidence of this, apparently from people who'd said they, you know, that had a dead cop who'd had blackface on and that, that killed him and they were, that managed to retain his body through the night. But just before I got there at dawn, that the cops had managed to retrieve the body. And that's the kind of thing that would have given a whole different face to the violence of the 90s. And so that is a problem. Um, I think in many cases, the extremes of photojournalism are quite gory and graphic, but that wasn't the only work that I produced and that I put out there, but those are the ones that remain in people's memories, sadly. Mm. Can we now turn to, to your marvellous new book and Marikana, a new book just published uh, this year by Penguin in South Africa, and soon, I think, I hope, to be released in the north called A Murder at Small Copy, The Real Story of the Marikana Massacre. This was a, a, a monstrous massacre on August the 16th, 2012, unforgettable. For myself, it was on my birthday. I can hardly forget it. <laughs> um, 
and maybe we could move from from the image to the text, if you like. Um, we can obviously dart back in and out, but I was thinking maybe uh, as as we were preparing for this for this podcast of other people who've written about Marikana, and I picked up the book by Peter Alexander and others and, and noticed that your photograph was gracing the cover and uh, also noticed various other photographers who've, who've, and photojournalists who've, who've grappled with uh, the whole history of, of the massacre. Your body of photographs, your oeuvre has taken over many decades, uh, you know, uh, a great deal of depth. It's uh, evocative. It's artistic, insightful. For instance, um, on your website, you're portraying, for example, life in Kinshasa, the precarious life of Zimbabwean immigrants today, just to name a few. But but for the book itself on Marikana, you you've used um, a lot of your own photographs that you took just before and just after the massacre. And you've introduced some others, including aerial photographs from the police supplied to the Marikana Commission of Inquiry. Um, and I was sort of trying to compare these with other photographers who've also captured the, the massacre in different ways, such as Felix Langamandla and Leon Siddiqui in a book, We Are Going to Kill Each Other Today, and a more uh, recent uh, art book called Platinum by Jason Larkin. So I was, I was really wondering about the art here and your how you could talk to us, how you could elaborate on both the technical and human aspects of, of photography in taking photographs and, and uh, in such periods of trauma and violence. Yes, I mean, the thing about Marikana, what attracted me to go up in the first place before the massacre, was that it looked remarkably like the 90s. It was like, this is so weird, this looks like the 90s, you know. And men with blankets and handmade spears and stabbing weapons and knives and such. And it's like, wow, this doesn't look like your average mining strike. And the fact that they'd retreated to that iconic copy, that very beautiful reddish granite rock, just I felt, well, you know, I want to get into this. And, I, and before I went up, I spent quite some time trying to use the contact of mine in the mining industry to make contact with these miners on the ground to see if I could get in amongst them because I'd heard that, you know, journalists and outsiders weren't being allowed to approach them. And I really didn't want to go, you know, sit with the police and lawnmen trying to cover a minor story. And I couldn't get a response. And eventually, you know, after I think I waited several hours and I got nothing. And then I just thought I'd drive up late that afternoon before the massacre. And it really just looked very filmic. It looked like a movie set in some ways. It was beautiful. The light was great. Um, there was singing and chanting and there was that edge of violence. And, you know, the as you drove up, you passed all these heavily armed cops with their kind of SWAT type uniforms. And it was like, whoa, you know, what what is happening here? This is quite something. Of course, by then there had been some deaths and that, but I hadn't been fully immersed in it. I'd just been following the radio and a bit of reading the newspapers and all of which was quite superficial coverage anyway. And by the time I got there, the miners had agreed to allow journalists to speak to some of them who were willing. And so, you know, access wasn't a problem. And you you could approach miners, you could get onto the copy and, and talk to people. So it was good from that point of view, my timing. I didn't waste too much time. <laughs> But there was certainly a sense of foreboding 
and I I hadn't come prepared to really record, so I just used my my cell phone to record people and interview a few people and record some of what is being said, especially when the police approached them and um, they were trying to talk to them through this porthole of a of a police armored vehicle and the police refused to switch off the diesel engines and you know it was just a joke nobody could negotiate like that it was it was clearly a fool's errand and they were trying to get the you know the AMCU leadership to talk these guys down and that just wasn't going to happen in that environment so photographically it was quite interesting it wasn't spectacularly fantastic it is it is early days but really from a from a text point of view from a story point of view it was clear that there was great depth to what was going on and I and the miners, it wasn't a casual affair. This was a deeply serious strike that wasn't going to be abandoned very quickly. And then after the killings, did, did everything, you know, then get transformed in, in, these, in this sense? Absolutely. You know, we didn't know how many people had been killed for quite some time. But for a couple of days at least before the police released the full numbers. But I went up well before dawn the next morning. And, you know, there was just this huge crime scene. But at that stage, we didn't know about the second half of the massacre or the second massacre at at Small Copy, the scene two, as it was called. And there was this worry about, you know, we saw the footage and it was so shocking and so god awful, really, watching these men being gunned down and there's that endless sound of automatic gunfire. I mean, I just you know, started, you know, started weeping and, and sobbing in front of the TV when I saw it for the first time. And I think that is quite a common reaction across the nation. But it didn't make sense. You know, 34 dead. Where did 34 die? You know, you, you saw that footage and it's maybe it's a dozen people, right? Uh, so where will the other deaths come from? But we were so kind of overwhelmed that it didn't sink in. And that's why, you know, the Peter Alexander and and Tepel Lahore and those people's research into what actually happened and and them telling Daily Maverick that actually many of the deaths took place at another place, a little distant. And so then I could start investigating that and looking at that. And and it wasn't that simple because the miners didn't want to speak to outsiders. There was great suspicion at that stage, and perhaps rightly so, of journalists being wedded to the establishment and the police. You mentioned scene two at the small copy. Uh, I think there are two really major revelations in your book, and one of them is this discovery of this small rock formation away from the main uh, venue, shall we say, of the strike uh, that was used, according to to, uh, the book, as a latrine, basically, by uh, the miners and the residents of the nearby communities. And there was something extremely creepy about what you came across there, that that unlike the first scene where basically the strikers were funneled down off the copy and into the fire, essentially, uh, of the security mm. forces, uh, here the, the scene was quite different. What, what did you find? And I remember seeing your photographs on Twitter and, and then you're writing in the Daily Maverick and there was something com- almost completely different from what you came across there, uh, almost like a mafia-style uh, uh, site of executions. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the impact of what you found and how you came to this conclusion? 
Sure. I mean, let's go back a bit to scene one, which is at that iconic kopi, which is about three, four, five hundred meters away from the next set of killings. So we saw that captured on film and video, and it was cleared as a hot, fast-moving affair where, you know, it really almost depends on your point of view whether you think the police shot on purpose or they reacted badly to what they felt was a dangerous situation. And that can be weighed up and it'll be continue to be argued for decades, I'm pretty sure, and it's purely based on where you stand subjectively. But once we found small copy and once you know it took me hours to get someone to take me there because i wanted someone to explain it but i didn't understand that there were no eyewitnesses i kept trying to find an eyewitness but all the eyewitnesses you know 270 people had been arrested everyone who survived small copy had been arrested or was in hospital uh, with injuries and so i'd wasted two-thirds of a day trying to find eyewitnesses not knowing there were no eyewitnesses to find Eventually, Tapello and I went to Small Copy, and the first thing you notice is the smell. It's the smell of human feces, right? That has that dreadful smell that reminds me of refugee camps, of slums, and it's very distinctive. And you see this area where the, the spring was just starting to bring out these beautiful wild pear blossoms, just dotted with toilet paper and tissue paper all over the place. And what it was, as you said, is that the people in the nearby shanty towns, which few have any sanitation, the only sanitation that's available is long drops. And, you know, if you are new to the area or your long drop is full or whatever the story is, you go out in the felt. And the felt is very dangerous and very exposed, especially for women. So small copy was a place that at least provided privacy for you to go to the toilet. And... That was the first impression. And the second impression was that this was a maze, that it wasn't a neat copy like we used to seeing them. It had been completely eroded and broken down. And so you had to wind your way up and over and through rocks into small clearings that were separated from other small clearings. And on this very hard granite was spray painted this fluorescent yellowy green paint that the crime scene people had used from the police to mark initially I thought bodies but also bodies and points of evidence and not everything was marked so some things were marked there were circles drawn on rocks there were letters so the key were the letters and you couldn't find a or b because they never sprayed that on on the points and you found uh, there was I couldn't find c either so d was the first one d e f g and there were all these things and wherever these letters were there were pools and splatters of blood and not insignificant amounts huge amounts and it was really with a sense of foreboding that i realized that this wasn't some kind of overshoot from what had happened at scene one where people you know were running this was where you had to get close because the rocks would have provided protection the only way you could shoot someone was if you could see them and to see them you had to get pretty close until I found a rock marked N, which later turned out to be the body of Henry Pato, but the crime scene guys had marked it incorrectly. It should have been M for mother, which led to a lot of confusion. But anyway, at this rock, spray-painted N, there was a huge pool of blood at the base of the rock. And the rock formed a wall on one side, and there was thick 
shrubbery and trees and other rocks surrounding this very protected place. So one can only imagine Henry Potter running from the cops who were hunting them down and chasing them and finding the spot and thinking this is a spot where I'll be safe. And, and yet it was here that he died, you know, and at that stage I didn't know what N meant, I didn't know who the body was, the police even later just refused to be forthcoming with any information. But N was the spot that marked for me that these were executions, that had to be cold-blooded murder as opposed to some kind of riotous scene where maybe the police had an excuse, the excuse they, they later put out that they shot in self-defense. It's a harrowing discovery to make. And the role of the police, of course, in obfuscating the truth, or worse, um, leads me to also the, the second major revelation that I came across in your book, in part related to the work of the Commission of Inquiry, and that is the what you call the deep throat source in the police. The uh, police held a meeting on the uh, 15th of August, so the day before the massacre, about 130 kilometers away, where the National Police Commissioner, after the formal meeting was over, held a secret meeting where apparently a decision was made to take action against the striking miners at Maricana. You talk about the fact that this is probably where the decision was made to then order the thousands of rounds of ammunition that were brought there and perhaps the mortuary vans that arrived uh, eerily just before the massacre. So was can you tell us about this source and also whether you think that this is evidence that perhaps there was a, there was a plan uh, by the police to kill the miners? That, that meeting of the National Management Forum was really important. I don't think that's where the decision was made. I think that's where the decision was rubber-stamped. I think the decision had been made beforehand that the miners had to be taught a lesson. First, primarily for killing policemen on the Monday before in a showdown between a handful of miners and a handful of cops in which two cops died and three miners died. But more importantly, because they were bucking the system. They were not playing the game. They were standing up against NUM. They were standing up against the ANC. They were messing with big business in terms of Lonman, in terms of Shanduka. And they were standing between the government and its taxes. And if the government didn't have taxes, the whole system of patronage can't exist. And it all became very personal, I think. You know, Noom got involved on a very high level. Sol Ramaphosa was involved. Uh, Sonjika was involved. I mean, these are big names of people who were personally involved. And then there's the specter of Julius Malema taking advantage of this anger and turning it to his favor, which is exactly what he did. They were quite prescient about that. But they thought they had to nip this in the bud to stop this. And so I think when it went to the management, National Management Forum meeting of all the top cops in the country, it was not to get their approval, but really just to tell them what it is and get them on board. And that is why this deep throat, as the, the people at the commission called him, came forward with information through a third party, that unlike what the police were saying, the entire forum had not okayed it and that the minutes were fake. And once this got looked at, it was clear that the minutes were fake and the police had absolutely misled 
everyone on this. In fact, they try to hide the, the nature of what had happened at a secret meeting after the National Management Forum. So when these top police got together, they had the normal business. They discussed finances and policing, whatever they normally do. And this is all recorded uh, by a contractor and, and minutes were taken by one of the police secretaries. Then they closed that meeting, ordered the note taker away. And Pieja, who was at that stage very new in her job, just a month, didn't know that the recording was still going on. And she thought what was being said was completely off the record and secret. But the recording kept going. And so the entire secret meeting between the, the actual tactical police and the commissioners, where they discussed Marikana and what they were going to do, and we don't know exactly what was said, because the deep throat had left the room. We find that that is what was key to what happened. And, and Pieja and others underneath her went to great trouble to delete and, and redact that out of the recording, which is actually a crime under the Secrecy Act. You're not allowed to do that number one. And number two, they just made up that section and said that the entire forum had agreed to okay the Marikana operation. And that's where these other people, the more administrative and financial types and administrative people, one of them said, no way, no way are we going to agree to that because then we're going to be blamed for the Marikana massacre. And that's when the leak happened. And I think that was key in breaking a police chain of lies. And subsequent to that, other things have come out. And obviously, we know that they've lied repeatedly from the very beginning, from day one, they've lied about what happened at Marikana. And there was definitely a, an effort to cover up the truth and to mislead the public in, in general. As well as these, uh, these uh, deep insights that you've given us in the book, you've also uh, captured so much of the drama and the characters uh, in Splendid Prose and your portrait of Mambush Noki, also known as the man in the green blanket, who was a main leader of the strike and was killed there, it's, it strikes us as being profoundly humanistic. What made him stand out? He was just a natural leader, and he was chosen by the, the strikers to represent them for good reason. He was this guy who apparently was very good kind of at dealing with issues that people had and sort them out in a very smooth way. He has, he was a very well-known soccer player, which always helps. And he had confidence and presence. And I think he just kind of rose to the top as this informal leader amongst the miners since they'd cast themselves adrift of the union where the formal leadership would have lay. And as his sidekick, he had this quite strange guy in Zusa who, who, who survived where Noki died. But they were kind of polar opposites. You know, one was charismatic, whereas the other is, is a little crazed in a way, you know. Um, and... and can be quite off-putting, but found a following, actually, amongst the miners. But as, as a team, they were very good. They worked off each other. And there was a third leader, Netsanyeho, who was, who was killed on the day as well. They all represented different aspects of a kind of leadership team that had risen quite organically. And then there was, of course, um, Tolokile Bele, who is another one who survived, who's a, a Zionist priest who very charismatic, but also all of these guys, what, what drew them together is that they were quite militant in their rejection of how Lonman was dealing with them. And I think that was key. And for those listeners who don't know, Lonman is the company that owned the platinum mines where the miners worked. And thinking about mining companies and governments and, and unions, 
and all these things. Maybe we could turn back to those more analytical questions in a, in a, in a final sort of part of the interview. And in the second part or the final part of your book, you, you start to look at the aftermath, uh, after the massacre, the implications. So there were sort of two sort of uh, questions I had there. One was, uh, and you've done it very well in the book, but how do we disentangle, how do we sort through both the short-term and the long-term causes of the events, the the shocking exploitation and conditions? You've mentioned the the copy uh, as the latrine, but I mean, there's a whole constellation of issues here, including the neglect of the miners by the company, even by the local uh, Bafokeng uh, royalty. There's the union rivalry, which was playing out tragically, the corruption, the the established police culture. I mean, um, we could think about the ways in which uh, elements of the state continue despite uh, political transformations. There's high-level political and mining interests, um, Lonman, for instance, uh, perhaps encapsulated in some ways by Cyril Ramaphosa. How do you uh, sort through all these things? Because here, in a way, you're, you're, you're also writing like a historian, uh, not just a journalist in this book. I mean, I really try to represent it as a historical book, but from a quite human point of view and telling people's stories and, and in a way that it's not complete because, you know, the police, no policeman would speak to me, no government people would speak to me. So it became what looks like a very biased um, book. And in, in a way, I guess it's very subjective, but that's because of those who would speak. And it's, it's very much about those giving voice to those who don't have power, the miners, to hear their point of view because the state and the police, they have plenty of venues to give their point of view and they have repeatedly. And, and I do include those, obviously, but I didn't have any kind of personal connection to individuals, sadly. I think the reasons are so complex. I mean, on the one side, it's quite simple. You know, it's exploitation. It's a state letting its citizens down. Um, it's greedy mining companies. But it's, it's much more complicated than that. You know, we don't want to paint the miners as victims. These are adult human beings at the height of their powers with what is quite reasonable jobs in South Africa with benefits, and they have agency over their own future. So painting them as victims is not what I wanted to do and, and certainly not what I did. But I also want to paint them into the full kind of weave of history and society in where people who earn what is considered a good wage, where you're a taxpayer, where your tax is so low that you don't have power at the government level. The government doesn't care about you. Your vote is one amongst millions, and so if I disregard you, it doesn't matter. If I disregard your economics, it doesn't matter because I'm getting more money elsewhere. And so people in this position are, are powerful but also weak. They're powerful in terms of that they do a job that very few can do, but they're weak in terms of they're seen as literally black bodies who can be replaced with a little bit of difficulty. And that's how Lonman has treated them. And the state has treated them the same way. And, and the fact that police were willing to enter onto the field armed primarily with assault rifles, the vast majority had only assault rifles with live rounds, means that you don't think that you're going to look for a peaceful solution, that you want an outcome that suits you no matter what happens to the people at the other end of those rifle barrels. And that's indicative of, of how South Africa and, and the world in general treats the poor. 
and the middle class and the lower middle class. It's like these numbers come and go. We don't care about you as individuals. We care about where you fit into our greater plan. And, and, the, and the appalling part is that many of the policemen who shot these, these men earned less than those men. Just recently, my students uh, watched miners shot down. We had this size, uh, really powerful film about the massacre in which you also appear. And we were talking about the film after the screening, and we were wondering, how has life changed or not for the miners and their families and communities in terms of their wages, in terms of their housing, their job security, their political voice and or representation? It's mm, a great question. So in terms of political representation, they really have found their voice. And in many ways, Julius Malema's party, the EFF, has provided a greater platform for them. Whether it'll prove any more beneficial in the long run to them and, and people like them, I don't know. We'll see. You know, history judges us in the long term and, and judges them in the long term. But certainly in the short term, their lives have improved. I, you know, Shadrach, the, the miner that I deal with the most in the book, he lived in a very, in, in, you know, in a very horrible shack in a terrible compound. And the increases in the salary helped him to move to a nicer place that had electricity, that had running water close by, that didn't have a reeking toilet and didn't live next to an open sewer. So things definitely improved for him. He bought um, a refrigerator, so he began to eat better and less, less money spent on consumables and food that went to waste. So really, the strike was beneficial. On the other side, you know, the days lost, you never really catch up to. I mean, uh, John Brand has done some numbers on this and going so long without a salary, you need years and years of that increase to make up for what is lost. And that money is normally owed to loan sharks and the interest keeps rising. And yet in the macro picture, you know, platinum is suffering. There's going to be less use of platinum because there's many more electric cars. So the whole catalyzer thing is getting less. Diesel, which is where it's mainly used, has taken a huge knock with the VW scandal worldwide on the cheating. And so job retrenchments are happening and, and mines are even in danger of closing down. And so you kind of think, well, they've won this long battle with an eye to the future and a future that is very precarious. That's very sobering for us uh, thinking about the, how this all plays out in the future for the families and for the miners and the communities. Thanks uh, so very much, Greg, for talking to Africa past and present. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Africa past and present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.